Thanks, guys. Well, good evening. Yeah, as they shared, we're in a new series called The Apostles' Creed. And one of the things that we're going to be doing every single week uh, is getting to recite the creed together. So if you guys are able and willing, please stand with me. And if you believe, please read, uh, say the creed with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Awesome. Thank you guys for joining me in that. Elvis Presley, Ty Warner, Maurizio Gucci, Napoleon, and Elizabeth Holmes. What do those people have in common? Each of them have had either a movie or a miniseries made about their lives in the last few years. Recounting their rise to stardom, rise to fame, rise to success, and their never-ending desire for more. More money, more fame, more power. And what these stories reveal to us is a temptation and danger of idolizing success. How power, fame, and money can corrupt someone and lead to their downfall and ultimately lead them, leave them dissatisfied, purposeless. And we see the same theme repeated in the news all the time, where celebrities and CEOs share about their depression, their loneliness, their moral failures, their substance abuse. The things that they had building their lives on failed to satisfy And although I would assume that most of us here in this room have probably never experienced that type of success or wealth, I think each of us can find, easily find ourselves centering our lives around things that are just as fickle and detrimental. So what is that thing for you? Maybe it's grades in school, or maybe it's an internship, or building up your resume and thinking about your future career. Or maybe it's just money, trying to get as much money as fast as you can, as much as you can. Or maybe it's relationships, family, friends, significant others, or experiences in, in entertainment, just living for the weekend, going from experience to experience and living off of that. Well, this tendency for, that's in each of us to center our lives on things, on these types of things, is what the Bible calls idolatry which author Tim Keller describes as turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. Turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. The things that we often center our lives around are usually really good things, maybe even great things, but we take those things and turn them into ultimate things. In essence, we worship them. And here's where the problem and danger lies when we do that. When you do this, you have given your life to something that is not worthy of your worship. The values, goals, desires, causes that you have dedicated your life to and made potentially tremendous sacrifices for 
are just not worth the level of dedication that you've given them. They're not able to carry that weight, to sustain it. They crumble, they fall apart, and they leave us empty, dissatisfied, frustrated, hopeless. Just like the main characters in those movies and TV shows. And I'm not saying that these things aren't good things, right? Again, that's, I think, part of the danger is that they are good things, but we turn them into ultimate things. But thankfully for us, there is indeed something, or rather a someone, that is indeed worthy of giving our entire lives to. Tonight, my hope is that by meditating on who Jesus is and what he has done, you'll be persuaded that he indeed is worthy and the only one worthy of surrendering our entire lives to. And wherever you're at spiritually, that each of us would leave this room compelled to worship and obey him with every fiber of our being. And to that end, I pray. Heavenly Father, just so thankful for your word, that your word reveals yourself to us, that we can go to it to learn more about you, and we can learn about your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that for all of us here in this room, Lord, you'd be working in our hearts, that you would help us get a clear picture of who Jesus is, that our love for you would grow more and more, and our love for the world or our love for these other things would diminish. Oh, Lord, would you help me present these things clearly? We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So as I mentioned, each week we're looking at a different aspect of the Apostles' Creed and letting that direct us to the Scriptures to teach us about some kind of foundational truth of the Christian faith. So tonight we have the second line of the Creed, which just says, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So with that, if you guys want to take out your Bibles, turn to John 6, and if you're using a blue Bible, you can find it on page 520. So it'll be in John chapter 6. And as you guys are flipping there, I'll give you guys a little bit of context. We're going to be towards the very end of the chapter in verse 66. But before this, what's been happening is Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And then the next day, he's in a different town, and that same crowd finds him. And they're like, hey, can you do some more stuff for us? Can you do some more miracles, do some more signs, give us some more bread? But instead of giving, meeting their needs, he instead tells them, I am the bread of life. Instead of having temporal satisfaction, temporal fulfillment, you can have true, everlasting fulfillment in me. You have to come to me and feed on me. You have to give me all of yourself. And this is the context that we come in in verse 66. So we pick it up here in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So we see here right in verse 66, right in the beginning of our passage, that as Jesus invited the crowds to look beyond their physical needs to their truest need, their spiritual ones, Many in the crowd, although they called themselves disciples of Christ, they made the decision right then and there to turn around and go home. Maybe for some of them, they just saw Jesus as a means to an end. They're like, hey, I heard a guy can multiply food. I'm showing up because I'm hungry, right? Or maybe their love for other things, their career, their families and friends, their reputation, their autonomy, 
and even maybe their sinful lifestyles made the invitation to go all in with Jesus just too high. I felt like too high of a sacrifice, too great of a cost. Because we see that the crowds were fine with following Jesus when he was feeding them and healing them. They were okay with giving him a part of their lives, a part of their time, a part of their finances, a part of their independence. But as soon as he asked anything of them in return, they dropped him. In their eyes, the eyes of the crowd, he, Jesus, was not worth devoting themselves entirely to, of sacrificing everything for. And I like to think about this as living a pizza life, where you take your life as a pizza and you slice it up. You take the different aspects of your life. So you say, okay, I have my school slice, I have my work slice, I have my social slice, my family slice, my entertainment slice, and Oh, if I have anything left, that's the Jesus slice. That's the God slice. And if you're honest, how many of our lives here today look like a pizza? All sliced up in different ways with maybe a little sliver for God or maybe none at all. Maybe you're here tonight and you aren't a Christian and you've never given even him a part of your life. Well, wherever you're at, you're not alone in that. And our passage has good news for us. Because in our passage, we see that Peter and the twelve understand something that the crowd doesn't. They see that Jesus is the only one truly worth following, the only one that's truly worth living for. For them, there was nothing that they weren't willing to give up to follow Jesus. But why? I think it's because Jesus had captured both their attention and their affection, which is basically another way of saying their worship. He'd captured their attention and their affection. In Doxa, which is Crew's Friday morning book club, we've been reading this short book this week called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the, basically the whole main point of the book is that in order to see a love for something diminish, of your love for lesser things or sinful things diminish, you have to replace it with a greater love, something that's more worthy of your love, something that's more captivating of your love. So replace a lesser love with a greater love. So the only way to stop worshiping unworthy things and start worshiping Jesus, the only worthy thing, the only way to stop living pizza lives and surrender everything to Jesus is to see Jesus and be convinced that he is more beautiful, more important, more fulfilling, and more worthy than anything else. And like I said earlier, that is my hope for each one of you here tonight, that you would leave this room enamored with and surrendered to Jesus Christ God's only Son, our Lord. And with that, let's go back to the passage and let's let God's Word illuminate the beauty of Jesus as we unpack three core truths about who He is and what He has done that should compel us and lead us to worship Him and surrender our lives to Him. So the first truth is this, that as the Christ, He has secured our salvation. So as the Christ, He has secured our salvation. She might be thinking, Randy, you just told me to go back to the passage, and then you said the first thing is that he is the Christ. And as I read these three verses, I don't see the word the Christ. And you'd be like, You're, you are correct. You get a gold star for today. Because Peter does not use the word Christ. However, he does call Jesus the Holy One of God, which commentators and biblical scholars have commonly understood as another way of referring to Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. 
let's explain what that means. Maybe some of you guys are like, yeah, Christ is obviously Jesus' just last name, right? Well, no, it's not. Um, Christ is just the Greek version of the Hebrew title Messiah, which was a term used in the Old Testament times to refer to a future figure who would come to rescue God's people from oppression that would execute justice and usher in a lasting peace. And most of the Jews of Jesus' day and even before Jesus' day thought of this Messiah or this Christ as a mostly socio-political one, somebody that was going to come in as a, social, as a political hero or a war hero. But if, we, if you know anything of Jesus' life, you know that he was far from what they were expecting. Because he never picked up a sword, he never ran for public office, he never led a protest or a demonstration. Rather, he came as a spiritual Christ. One who would deliver people from their greatest oppressors. Not Rome, not the economy, not some laws, but Satan, sin, and death. And this is largely why the crowds are beginning to turn away from following him. Because they don't see their need for a spiritual savior. They're just looking up for a political one, a physical one. They're like someone who has a broken leg and terminal cancer. But they only know about their leg and they don't know about their cancer. So all they all care about is getting their leg fixed, even though their cancer is slowly killing them. But for those of us, so for, to them, for, to hear about a spiritual, uh, a spiritual Christ, that would not be good news, because they're like, I want my physical needs taken care of. But for those of us who recognize our spiritual cancer, who see the brokenness that's intrinsic in each one of us, and that's so prevalent in our world today, that we understand that this, this brokenness can't be fixed by a political party or a war or a social media campaign or any self-help book or any human effort. For all those people, for those of us that understand that, the fact that Jesus came as a spiritual Messiah is good news. Paul describes Jesus' spiritual victory as the long-awaited Christ this way in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the victory that Jesus secured for us. A victory over death, a victory over our sin, a victory over Satan and all the spiritual forces that wage war against us. Friends, in Jesus, we have a Christ who secured our salvation. One that we did not deserve nor earn, but what was one that was graciously and mercifully offered to us at the cost of his own life. He is indeed worthy. So on to truth number two. As the Son, He has secured our adoption. As the Son, He has secured our adoption. So again, you might be thinking, Randy, you keep saying this, these things are going to be in John 6, but again, I'm not seeing the word Son there. And again, you'd be right. But the really cool thing about Scripture is that the Bible, as we talked a lot about last semester, the Bible holds together and tells one story. The Bible's cohesive. And it talks about things in many different ways in different places. And specifically, the gospel accounts have four different accounts of Jesus' life. And they each tell different things or include different details or tell it in a different way. And we call this cross-referencing or parallel passages. So in one of the parallel passages to our passage here in John 6, 
Peter doesn't say that Jesus is the Holy One of God, but instead he says Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we don't necessarily see it in this passage, but we see it in parallel passages that Jesus is not only the Christ, but he's also the Son. But what's the big deal? Why does it matter that Jesus is the Son? Well, if you were here last week, you heard Nick teach us about how the glorious truth that we can relate to God as our Father because of the sonship that we have been adopted into. And this semester in community groups, we're studying the book of Galatians. And in in Galatians, in chapter 4, Paul gives us this beautiful description of how Jesus, as the Son, actually secures our adoption. So I say, okay, you're telling me I'm adopted, but how? How does that actually come about? Well, in Galatians 4, 4, he says this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So did you catch that? Jesus, the son, redeemed us from the weight and impossibility of living up to the the law. He redeemed us from slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to the devil. And instead, he secures our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And as sons and daughters, we can call him our father and get to enjoy all of the blessings that go along with that. Again, that Nick talked about last week. Author J.I. Packer, he speaks of our adoption as the highest privilege that the gospel offers. The highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even, he says, than justification. For in the gospels we just looked at in the last truth, we are justified, we are made right. Our sin is removed. Our sin is taken away. It is forgiven. So we are made right with God. We have an innocent standing before him. But our adoption goes one step further. It doesn't just say you are right with God. It says you are a child of God. And how much greater it is to be in a family, to be in a familial relationship rather than just a right standing. Just to be good with someone is, is nice, but to be an intimate relationship with them is even greater. So what a privilege and grace. So through Jesus' incarnation, his life, and his death, we are no longer slaves nor orphans, but heirs with Christ, blessed and secure in our identity as beloved children of God. Jesus in love has invited us into this father-son relationship that he has enjoyed from eternity past, and he invites us into that security, that depth, that love, that joy. Indeed, he is worthy. So that brings us to our last truth, truth number three. That as the Lord, he has secured our worship and surrender. As the Lord, he has secured our worship and surrender. So Peter, in our passage, he begins when Jesus says, are you guys going to leave as well? Are you guys going to go away? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? He addresses Jesus as Lord. And in our 21st century Western ears, we're like, whatever. That's just a a fancy title, right? But in days past, when kings and queens ruled over nations, this word, Lord, carried much more significance and seriousness. To call someone Lord was both to acknowledge their authority, but also their honor. 
in Jesus as the Lord has both honor and authority intrinsically. He doesn't have to earn it. It doesn't have to be given to him. But Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, it is essential to who he is as both God and Lord. And because of that, he has every right to demand our worship, our devotion, our trust, our love, our obedience in our lives. But yet he doesn't do that. He did not sit upon his throne and just demand things of us, though he could have, and he would have been right to do it. But rather he left his throne, he left his place of authority and honor and took on human nature, subjecting himself to all the limitations of humanhood and rejection and scorn and suffering of the cross. Again, Paul comes to our aid here and helping us to understand this in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, where he says this of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to or to be used for his own advantage, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, he did all of this for you. He did all of this for me, for sinners, for people who rightfully should be worshiping God, but instead we worship other things. For people who time and time again reject Jesus and instead choose independence and sin. For people who keep back part of their lives and don't give him his rightful honor and glory and worship. For people who give their lives to much, much lower things, things that can't actually satisfy us, that's who he does that for, us. Jesus, as our Lord, doesn't just demand our worship or surrender, but out of his deep love for us and his grace, he's demonstrated his worthiness of it. So why should we surrender our lives to Jesus? Because he surrendered everything for you. Why should you love Jesus? Because he first loved you. Why should you worship Jesus? Because he is the only one truly worthy of worship. Author A.W. Tozer speaks of the great exchange that happens when we surrender our lives to Jesus. He says, the man who surrenders to Christ he exchanges a cruel slave master for a kind and gentle master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Friends, I hope that you have seen tonight, even in our short time together, our short study, how incredibly and completely worthy Jesus is of our worship and our surrender. And leaving tonight, knowing that he is the Christ that he has paid for your sins with his blood and secured your salvation, knowing that he, has the, he is the son and he has invited you into the security and blessing of his sonship, knowing that he is our Lord and not only rightfully deserves our obedience and worship, but has also proven himself worthy of it. How should knowing these things change your life? How should these things change how you surrender to him? To surrender your decisions, your priorities, your values, your money, your phone, your relationships, what you look at, who you spend time with, how you date, who you date, your time, 
whether it be your morning, your weekend, spring break, summer, your life. What areas are you holding back from the lordship of Jesus? What things are you worshiping in place of him? And as you look at this portrait that we looked at tonight, this brief portrait of Jesus and his worthiness, how could we turn to those things again? These lesser things. Whatever these areas and strongholds are for you, let us confess along with Peter that there is indeed nowhere else we can go to find true eternal life. For we believe and have come to know that Jesus is indeed the Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, and as such is worthy of our worship and our surrender. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we're just so thankful for who you are as Christ, as Son, as Lord, that of your love for us and your deep grace for us, that you have welcomed us in to your father-son relationship, that you've taken away our sin, that you've proven yourself worthy, and you've given us a better way, a more satisfying way, a more secure way, a more sure way of living. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would just continue to uh, paint this beautiful picture in our hearts and our minds. Would you draw our hearts to worship you more, to love you more, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.